heavily, I'm a clown. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin constitutional amendments. I have a very special episode for you guys today. It's going to be different than usual. You know how I like to mix things up. I'm trying to broaden my horizons a little bit, and I think that you guys are going to really like this. I had CJ from the Dangerous History podcast on to talk about early American politics. Now, don't tune out. Because trust me, this is an awesome conversation, and all of this stuff ties back into Bitcoin, and I always try to tie stuff back into economics, and we talk about anarchism and the pitfalls of centralized systems and their political and economic consequences. You guys are going to love this episode, so let's just jump right into it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. CJ, how you doing, man? Very good. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. I've been trying to get you on for a while, actually. Uh, we kind of lost touch there because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to focus this episode on. And this is this is a little bit different than what I normally do. But I think that this period of history, this uh, post-revolution America, is so interesting. And there's so many interesting lessons to be learned from some of the political policies at the time and some of the economic policy at the time. And um, how much different the political parties were than they are today. Yeah, it's it's a completely different country. I mean, it's a country that, um, I want to say, around the, the time of the end of the Revolutionary War, I think there were still three, maybe three and a half million people uh, in the territory of the United States. So, I mean, just it's, it's just insane to think about you know, there are plenty of American states today that have much more people than that. And, you know, culturally, a very different place, much more, um, at least as far as the Anglo-Americans are concerned, much more closely tied still to kind of British Isles cultures and, um, you know, religious and cultural and political concerns than, than modern America. And obviously, just the levels of technology and all that. I mean, there's all kinds of issues that we think about today that just didn't exist back then because, you know, the Industrial Revolution really hadn't hit yet. And so, you know, there's, there's just a whole host of things that we think about and argue about and whatever today that just weren't worth arguing about back then because they didn't exist yet. Hmm, certainly. Yeah. Um, I, I, for anybody who's listening who doesn't, isn't super familiar with this period of time, um, I, in early America, I guess you could say they were two dominant political schools of thought. There was the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. And interestingly enough, yeah, Democratic Republican was, was its own party. It wasn't, um, there, there weren't Democrats and Republicans. It was just the Democratic Republicans. I don't think the first Democrat was uh, until Jackson. The first Republican was Lincoln, I believe. Yeah, yeah. They were the first ones to, to just sort of, you know, be the be the ancestors of the modern-day Democratic and Republican parties, even though they have little in common uh, with with what the parties are about now. Um, I think that in terms of like just 
the the way people spoke colloquially that the Jeffersonian side more frequently was just kind of referred to as Republicans at the time. Um, and, and the language was kind of loose, too. At, at different points, there there were different terms, like you, you sometimes will run into references to um, like national Republicans back then. And, and this would refer, I think, to people like James Madison, who are like the less what we would think of as Jeffersonian Jeffersonians. I mean, you look at a guy like James Madison, um, he actually was a Federalist in the context of the debate over the Constitution. So uh, he wasn't as extreme of a Federalist as someone like Hamilton, but mm. he, he was a Federalist. He did want a larger, more, more centralized, more powerful government than what the Articles of Confederation uh, produced. But then, you know, the, the word Federalist had a different meaning in the 1780s in the context of the debate over the Constitution. They weren't really parties yet. They were just sort of like factions. And there was a lot of difference within them where to be a Federalist in the 1780s simply meant you, you favored adopting the Constitution and, and making some, some amount of a more centralized, powerful government than the Articles. But then in the 1790s or late 1800s, Federalist becomes more associated specifically with like that, the Hamiltonian sort of paradigm. Whereas, mm-hmm. And sympathy with uh, the British crown. Yeah, or, or at least um, certainly wanting to be allied with them in, in the, the wars, the Napoleonic and French Revolutionary Wars, and uh, definitely liking a lot of features of the British mercantilist system. Um, things like a, like a national bank and um, mercantilist economic policies, that sort of thing, you know, protectionism, um, all, all those, those sorts of things. Yeah, there's, there's a story, and I don't know how true it is or, or apocryphal or not, but there's a story that is in a lot of history books, and it's depicted in the HBO uh, mini miniseries John Adams, uh, where where Hamilton and John Adams are having a conversation, and Hamilton or Ad- Adams says to Hamilton, "You know, the British system, if you could get rid of all the corruption in it, would be probably the best political system, you know, possible." And Hamilton's response was something like, "No, the the British system." is so good precisely because of the corruption, because the corruption, you know, the cronyism, that's what actually makes it function. So, um, you know, there, there were different shades of opinion um, over, over just how far to go. Um, certainly in the, in the context of the debate over the Constitution, Madison would have been a more moderate Federalist, I think. Hamilton would have been more on the far end of things. Um, but then once you get... Once the Constitution is a done deal, then it's an argument over, okay, what does this thing, this document mean? How should we read it? How should we interpret it? And in, in the context of that, James Madison um, is more in sympathy with the Jeffersonian side in general, although, like I said, he's, he's sometimes considered one of these, you know, national Republicans or something like this, where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he actually... Well, one- he he does cave on the bank, right? He does preside over bringing bringing back the national bank after the War of eighteen twelve, for example. Right. 
Yeah, what stands out most to me is um, his economic policy because the the Federalists, well, Hamilton in particular, um, he, he both proposed the bimetallism peg and he chartered or chartered the First National Bank. Um, James Madison, I, I don't believe, wanted or, or was necessarily in line with those types of economic policy. He wanted to decrease federal taxes. He wanted to pay down federal debt. Uh, but he his hand was sort of forced by the War of 1812, um, which is sort of the mess that Adams left him after he left office. Or, or sorry, that uh, sort of the, the mess, the fallout post-Quasi-War. Um, oh, an interesting thing that I came across was that the... Uh, when the federal, when Adams was in power, Adams was the last Federalist. The federal government of the United States defaulted on their debt to the French Revolution. Uh, well, because originally that debt that funded the American Revolution was a debt to the French Crown, and when the French Revolution happened, uh, the the administration at the time, which was Adams, defaulted on the debt to the French, saying that it was owed to the Crown and the Crown no longer existed, and that was sort of the kicking off point for the Quasi Wars. Yeah. And and then you also had, you know, the, the naval interference that was already taking place. It was almost sort of like for a while there, uh, the British and the French would would almost take turns. Um, and I'm sure they weren't actually coordinating it because they were at war with each other at the time. But it's like you'd have a you'd have a few years where the, it would be the British kind of interfering more with American shipping and all that on the high seas. And then they'd kind of back off for a little while. And then the French would suddenly get more more aggressive with that, you know, um, sort of denying what were considered uh, neutral rights on the high seas back then for neutral shipping and all that. But yeah, you also had the the debt issue. And and to be honest with you, I mean, you know, kind of within the the status political paradigm, I mean, it is it is reasonable to me that if you incurred a debt to a particular state and that state ceases to exist because of you know, revolution or some other kind of collapse, that is reasonable to me for the for the government that owes the debt to say, yeah, the it it, it would be like if if you contracted a debt with somebody and and then they died, and I mean, you know, assuming they had no heirs or whatever like that, and I don't know, I'm I'm trying to come up with a metaphor that that works, maybe I can't, but. I don't know. Suppose you owed a debt to somebody, they die, and then someone else like moves into their house and says, well, you know, because now I live in this house that this guy you owed a debt to, now you owe the debt to me. Um, it doesn't seem to me that it would be, I don't know if that's a perfect analogy, but that's kind of how I see it, right? Like if the United States had owed the Shah of Iran a bunch of money, it would seem to me that those debts would go when his regime ceased to be uh, the, the the state over the territory we call Iran, if that makes sense. Sure. And I can understand, though, on the flip side as well, how that would under- upset um, the French citizenry, you know, being in support of the American Revolution, generally speaking, sort of being a pseudo-inspiration for the French Revolution, and then uh, turning to the Americans who, you know, w- one way or another, whether they, they were taxed uh, to fund that debt, Sure. One way or another. Um, so I can understand it would be frustrating for, as a French citizen to sort of feel slighted a little bit by that, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a great point. And it kind of shows you how, you know, once you're in the the statist paradigm with compulsory taxation and all these sorts of things, it's like there often aren't 
very good uh, answers to these sorts of dilemmas, right? It's, it's sort of like, you know, when the, the, the government of a particular place runs up a massive crushing amount of debt, and then it's like, well, how, how are they going to deal with it? Are they going to default? Well, then they're, they're screwing over uh, the bondholders. Are they going to inflate? Well, then they're kind of screwing over everybody, and it's, and it's regressive where, you know, the poorest people tend to be the hardest hit by um, hyperinflation and whatnot. And it's like, there's no, no matter what you do, somebody is, is going to get screwed in a way that from their perspective seems unfair and that they all have at least some amount of legitimate reason for being annoyed, right? I mean, people who bought bonds believing they're going to get paid back at a certain amount or whatever. It's like, yeah, if, you know, if they get, if they get screwed, then from their perspective, it makes sense that they would be resentful. Um, if hyperinflation, if they inflate their way out of the debt, well, that's going to screw everybody. I mean, there's, there's like no, there's no easy way out once you get into these dilemmas. Right. Right. And, and the governments are incentivized to to in inflate as much as possible because it decreases the real value of the debt on the long-term basis. Sure. Plus, they can count on, um, in, in most societies in modern times, they can count on people not having a basic grasp of economics. And so, you know, if you inflate your way out of a debt, then when prices suddenly shoot up, you can blame greedy speculators, you can blame greedy hoarders, you can blame greedy, you know, businessmen or whatever like that. Um, and, and the politicians can then deflect uh, the blame away from themselves, right? So, Right. And uh, maybe it's best for us to like start with Adams and kind of work our way up to, you know, through Jefferson and to Madison, because it's kind of hard to talk about these things, because they all kind of took place around the same time. But I don't know. I, I don't want to overestimate uh, the listeners' um, sorting out or organization in their mind of these events, but um, Jefferson was just a fiercely anti-central bank, anti-fiat money type. I mean, he, he he wrote about it quite a lot, actually. The warnings that he gave uh, to what fate would befall the nation should they fall victim to uh, that type of thing, and and I think it was under the Jefferson presidency that the first national bank uh, charter lapsed. Jefferson allowed it to lapse because he wasn't a fan of it. And then, like I said, under the Madison presidency, Madison was sort of had his hand forced um, in order to fund the War of 1812 uh, because he believed that the state militias would fight on behalf of the U.S. interests and sort of found himself wanting for um, a functioning army, functioning military, um, without federal funding. Yeah, the, the War of 1812 was a complete... A complete mess, and it—it's something. Um, I I keep meaning to dig more into it, but because it often gets such short shrift in in most U.S. history coverage, and there's there's so much more going on there than meets the eye. It's it's very just so much of it doesn't doesn't add up and doesn't make sense. Where if you look at what the supposed reasons for going to war against the British during that time were a lot of them are reasons that you would expect would be more of a problem for New England. And in reality, New England was the most anti-war part of the country, as I'm sure you know, like New England basically kind of nullified the war as far as they were concerned and just ignored it for the most part. And they were the ones, because they were the part of the country by far the most involved in 
uh, shipping and all that stuff and, and global trade, they were the ones that were the most hit by, you know, the, the British interference with American shipping rights on the high seas, with uh, the whole impressment thing of, of American sailors, um, all these sorts of things. It was hitting them. And yet, for the most part, the parts of the country that were most gung-ho for war uh, were the South and the West. And of course, back then, the West was like, you know, Kentucky and those sorts of places, right? Uh, Indiana was the West. But um, now, now, there were some reasons why those um, those places would be angry at the British, in particular because the British still had a presence on the frontier. In some places, they still had uh, bases basically occupied on what was technically American territory. And they certainly were doing business with the Indians. And uh, the the pro-war people were alleging that the British were not just doing business with the Indians, but like really instigating them and inciting them to attack American frontier areas. And I think it still is somewhat debatable how much that was actually true or not. Um, you know, it could have just been a matter of the, the British, um, you know, if you're doing business with the Indians, like what's one of the number one things they're going to want to buy from you that they don't have the ability to make for themselves? Well, it's weaponry, right? So that's that's some of your most valuable trading goods if you're trading with the Indians. And so, you know, I, I don't doubt that the British were trading guns and ammo to the Indians, but then, you know, were they really like putting the Indians up to attacking Americans, or would the Indians not have had plenty of reasons of their own to uh, to want to attack Americans, whether the British were nudging them to do it or not? Um, but but then there's, there's a whole dimension of the War of 1812 that often gets overlooked, which is, at least in the States, which is um, the, the fantasies about taking Canada. And this goes all the way back to the American Revolutionary War and um, the the peace conference at the end of the war, where there were a lot of very aggressive expansionists, probably the most important at that time being Ben Franklin himself, who really wanted to just grab as much of North America as they could. And their number one priority was Trans-Appalachia, which is the huge piece of territory in between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. And they thought that should go to the United States, even though hardly any Americans actually lived there at the time. And then their their kind of secondary priority was Canada. And, you know, as, as many people may know, Americans did try to invade Canada and get it to join the Revolutionary War um, and also rebel against the British, but that failed really, really pathetically during the Revolutionary War. But some Americans never let go of this dream of taking over Canada. You know, today we, we assume because we have hindsight, we assume that the United States was going to take the shape that it ultimately did. Um, but in fact, for a long time, manifest destiny, even before that was a, the term for it, um, was, was very hazily defined. I mean, some Americans for a long time thought it was, you know, divinely inevitable that the United States would take over Cuba and, you know, Canada as well, and who knows what. And so, you know, you have people like Henry Clay, for example, who was a big-time war hawk uh, for the War of 1812, it was very early in his political career, and he was 
he was pretty open in some of his speeches that like, hey, isn't this a great excuse to go take over Canada? Now, of course, it failed again in the War of 1812. And in, in some sense, it's kind of almost the beginning of a Canadian sort of nationalism is fending off the American invaders. Um, so I'm sure they're, I'm sure Canada's history coverage of the War of 1812 is quite different from ours. But yeah, there's there's lots of there's lots of ulterior motives and opportunism, and just like today, right, where it's like, anytime they're going to war, they they've got all these multiple layers of of justifications and reasons for it, and you know, anytime you debunk one of them, they just move the goalposts and say, well, actually, we're doing this war for these reasons, you know. Right. So, and it's and it's easy to get caught up in your your modern modernity and your thinking. Um, like from an American centrist point of view, you're thinking about the British and the French as allies uh, post-revolution when, you know, in, in reality, there were so many of these small conflicts um, that at the time, you know, the, the territories that were vying to slice up North America were mostly the British, the French and the Spanish. So why shouldn't the Americans have had any sentiment to allow them to increase power in those territories or increase their, you know, right. Cause, cause that's a threat. And, um, th- this problem of defense was uh, national defense was an early and frequent problem for early America. I mean, I, I think it's particularly noticeable, uh, in the Barbary coast wars. That was sort of when it first really hit America, like, Hey, we have a defense problem. And if we want to get this economy going, right, if we want to trade with Europe, um, we're going to have to do something about this because our ships are being you know, captured by the Tripoli pirates. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to pay for this? And that was sort of like, how, how do you solve that problem of national defense as a, as a decentralized collective? That's not an easy problem. No, no. Um, and part of it, too, is that the the Americans were very expansionist from the get-go. I mean, they had been born and raised, uh, the generation that, you know, fought the revolution, they had been born and raised essentially as the frontline shock troops on the frontier of the British Empire. And so they had, um, as one of my favorite books about all this stuff, is a book called Habits of Empire by an historian named Walter Nugent. And and I think the title sums it up perfectly, Habits of Empire, right? That these, before they considered themselves Americans, when they were still, you know, British colonials, they had just been kind of born and raised for multiple generations in, um, in, in, in territorial expansion, just being what you do. And the thing is with empires, and you see this with the Romans and all the other, um, particularly like the big kind of contiguous land empires where once you start to expand expansion becomes its own justification in a way, because there's always a territory just over the horizon that somebody else controls, right? Whether it's the Spanish or the British or hostile Indians or whoever it is. And so if you expand into the territory adjacent to that, well, sooner or later, there's going to be some kind of dispute or hostilities or, you know, a lot of times it starts off as kind of informal kind of back and forth raiding. And then eventually someone says, well, you know, the only way we can make the territory we already have secure is to take over the next territory over. And then you take that territory over, and then what ends up happening is the next territory over from that, you go, oh my gosh, now we're getting into, you know, disputes with those people over there. And 
Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's possible that if the United States had not started off with successfully at the bargaining table getting Trans Appalachia despite having almost no boots on the ground there, that it, it's possible that the Appalachian Mountains themselves may have formed sort of like a natural frontier. And, you know, would that have been enough to overcome the American psychological habit of empire? I don't know. But that you would have at least had some sort of like a natural line of, all right, this is, you know, we're going to defend up to here. And it's at least theoretically possible that that you might have ended up with a with a non-expansionist republic um, that, you know, now maybe down the road, as, as you were saying with the Barbary pirates and all that sort of stuff and some of the, the, the naval conflicts with, with France and all that, you know, down the road there, there may have been ocean conflict, right. To protect trade routes or whatever. Um, but if you look at, by contrast, look at a Republic like Switzerland, right. Which, you know, had this initial expansion and then for quite a long time has basically had more or less the same territory, and and it has to do with you know the the countries surrounding it and its own kind of natural frontiers having to do with the geography on the ground and whatever but you know switzerland to me it shows that you can potentially have a a fairly decentralized republic that's not aggressively expansionist that still does a lot of business with a lot of the world and is able to do it without getting into lots of wars. So, so I don't know, to me, Switzerland is always an interesting contrast to the United States, because in theory, there's a lot of similarity. You've got a, a supposedly, you know, confederated, decentralized republic uh, with, with certain traditions about, you know, based on classical republicanism about what citizenship means and all this sort of thing, that at least at the beginning starts off with the militia sort of defense system and all that. And then you know, the United States pretty quickly starts going down a more imperial path, a more kind of uh, British-style mercantilist imperial path. Um, and the Switzer the Switzerland largely, at least for the past few hundred years, kind of stays with with the original ideas of, of small-R republicanism. So it's an interesting contrast. And I have to wonder, too, if, you know, Switzerland had an advantage just geographically. Uh, they were closer to the money in terms of trade. Um, than the United States was. The, the United States had to solve much different problems in facilitating trade with Europe than uh, Switzerland had to. Yeah, and you had in um, much of the country, you had wealth being based, in the United States, wealth being based on agriculture. And that that was one of the things driving expansion because there were there were Northern expansionists and Southern expansionists. They They kind of place different emphasis on different types of expansion and, and whatnot. But, you know, Southerners were also very aggressively expansionist. They, they drove um, the, the ultimate takeover of Texas and were the main driving force behind um, the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. And a lot of that was driven by, in, in their economic system, the basis of wealth was ultimately plantation agriculture. And so if you, if you wanted to keep 
providing opportunity for class mobility, you had to keep expanding. And especially a lot of the crops and a lot of the techniques they were using back then were, were very hard on the soil. So it didn't take very many, many generations of growing something like tobacco before uh, you're depleting the soil and going, oh, we got to go, we got to go west again. You know, we got to go, got to find new lands. So, you know, the, the argument I've been making, particularly the last few years, is that that the United States, and this is not, you know, a new argument to me, that other people have been making it for a while. But if you go back to maybe the earliest days of my podcast, I had the view more like, well, the United States was mostly not an empire. And then the real turning point was maybe like the 1890s, you know, the Spanish American War and all that stuff. And, um, you know, sort of the era of Teddy Roosevelt and people like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that was, that was uh, sort of like the internal, the internal part, right, of, of building a more centralized state internally that then projected itself outward after that. Um, but, but more and more, I've, I've switched over to the, the view that, you know, it's always been an empire. It's been different kinds of empire from one time period to the next. And there's always been different factions that, that disagree on exactly how the empire should work and, and who it should work for and how it should operate. And, you know, should it expand more over here or should it expand more over there, whatever. So that it's not, it's not a monolithic, like always one, one thing constantly, but that it, it always has been an empire. And even like someone like Thomas Jefferson, uh, the phrase manifest destiny wasn't coined yet, but Jefferson frequently would use the phrase empire of liberty. And, you know, he's, he's, he's very much an expansionist. He was conflicted because he thought you could reconcile territorial expansionism with very decentralized, limited government and all that stuff that he liked, you know, and, and, and fiscal, fiscal conservatism and hard money and all that. And I don't think you can go down the path of, of territorial expansion too long and still stick to those things for very long. I think sooner or later, you've got to make a choice. You've either got to, you know, make the choice of, of limited government and decentralization and all that sort of stuff, or we're going to be an empire. Um, that's a, that's a really good point. Cause I've noticed when you look at, um, the wars that were taking place around this time period and each war, you know, particularly each president sort of had their own conflicts to worry about. And, um, each war was the main driver of political and economic policy at the time. And when, when you see it, you see this expansion of power and expansion of economic, um, economic control, I guess you could call it, by the federal government. It, it was driven by those wars that were mostly caused by territorial expansion. Um, like Adams, for example, you know, the, the Alien and Sedition Acts in the Quasi-Wars that made it illegal to criticize the federal government. And, and it was this Alien and Sedition Act um, and also made it more difficult for immigrants to come into the U.S., uh, revoked the, I think it was the British, or the, yeah, the British citizenry. Um, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on that. But the, uh, that was what uh, prompted Jefferson and Madison to pen the Kentucky and Virginia Resolution, um, which essentially argued that, that states had the rights to uh, hold the federal government accountable to the expansion of their power um, because Adams claimed that the federal government had implied powers, powers that weren't granted directly in the Constitution but were implied by the nature of being the federal government. Right, and then ironically, um, Jefferson and, and Madison 
pen those those documents in favor of nullification in, in interposition. Then ironically, they both had those same ideas quoted back at them once they were presidents over various things. So you had um, resistance, and I and I don't remember exactly how much of it was actually like like passed and executed, and how much of it was simply threatened and and sort of talked about, but. Um, under Jefferson's presidency, you had in uh, the New England states, you had resistance and or talks of resistance against both the Louisiana Purchase, which a lot of New Englanders in particular argued was unconstitutional, and then also against Jefferson's Embargo Act, where he basically just like, you, you know, unilaterally got an arg- um, a unilateral embargo where the United States just sort of was like, we're not going to uh, allow Americans to trade with anybody. Um, and, and you know, I, I suppose that's better than going to full-fledged war, but it's still a pretty bad way to to deal with the situation. Just, you know, shut down a huge part of the country's economy. We, we see where that goes, right? That, you know, that's, that's not always a very good option. Um, and so, you know, you had nullification threatened and in, in at least a few cases, I think, more or less carried out. And then same thing with uh, Madison in regard to the War of 1812, that, you know, the, the New England states essentially nullified the war. And late in the war, they even had the Hartford Convention, where a whole bunch of very prominent uh, leaders from the New England states met. And they didn't quite follow through on this, but they were seriously raising the idea, among other things, of possible secession. And you can see the the way that guys like Jefferson and Madison were conflicted, because on the one hand, they're doing these things that seem to go against some of their own stated, you know, beliefs and values. And then they're having some of their own ideas about states' rights and decentralization and all all the things that go along with that brought up against their own policies. And I'm sure they they must not have uh, been been too happy about that. And yet at the same time, as far as I know, neither of them ever, ever came real close to like threatening military force against these, these New England states for pushing back. So you can see like they still, they, they didn't have the willingness of somebody like Jackson or later somebody like Lincoln to flat out tell a state like, we will invade you and make you comply. They, they, they had, had enough like still of reverence for, at least the idea of decentralization, that they weren't quite willing to do that. And Jefferson, um, I know on a few occasions, kind of said like, well, you know, if they really do ultimately want the New England states, if they do really want to go their own way, I think it's unwise, but I don't think I have the right to stop that. I forget his exact words, but he sort of said like, you know, I, I, I wish them the best if they really want to go. Now, it ultimately never came to that, but it just shows you how there's there, there's this ultimate conflict, I think, uh, between imperialism and uh, liberty and decentralization, that you can't reconcile the two of them. And you ultimately have to make a choice one way or the other. And a- another interesting contrast looking at other parts of the world is uh, if you go back and look at the early history of the Dutch Republic and the early history of the Swiss Republic, they have a lot of similarities in their early history. They both ultimately won their independence by breaking off from a powerful empire. In the case of the Swiss, they broke away from the Habsburg Empire of of Austria. And in the case of the Dutch, they broke away from what was at that time the Habsburg Empire of Spain. 
And in both cases, they were they were little little countries that formed a republic and that you know really were the underdogs and managed to win their independence in part because of terrain. Switzerland has mountains, and and uh, Holland has you know all the the, the water and swamps and uh, waterways and all that that makes it kind of hard to invade. And they both started off with these very kind of classically republican ideals and all that of, of citizenship and decentralization and all that. And the Dutch didn't take very long before they started going down the path of empire and, and building up a pretty significant uh, sea-based empire in the, the 17th century. And, and the Swiss didn't. The Swiss ultimately just never went down the path of they briefly kind of toyed with imperialism and and were aggressive for a little while but after after starting to lose some wars they said all right we're going to just you know kind of stick with what we got as far as territory and just defend that and it is kind of interesting seeing the the different ups and downs um and that's an even better controlled experiment i think than the than comparing the swiss to the americans because they're they're both you know european they're both um, small places with similar backstories and all that, but they just made different historical choices, right? Whether to go down the path of empire or not. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You hit on some really interesting things there um, to kind of go back to the nullification crisis uh, under the John Quincy Adams presidency. I think it was, I mean, it's interesting that the, the Kentucky Virginia resolution is still coming back up. Uh, in, in the midst of the nullification crisis and sort of, again, sort of the precursor to um, civil war tensions. But it's like you said, uh, Andrew Jackson came in and basically said states don't have the right to secede from the union. The, the nullification crisis, you know, is a joke. The federal government is, is all powerful it was essentially Jackson's declaration, which I think is interesting, too, because um, following the era of good feelings the, the there was like this euphoric sense of american nationalism this we're unstoppable um this you know we we can't be beat we're going to continue expanding everything in whatever way we need to because we're america so uh, a rise in national pride um i guess you could say and and it sort of like descended into like the i think the federalist doctrine sort of dissolved around that time as well around the era of good feelings or sort of ceased to be relevant because it everybody was democrat republican now um when it was jackson you know and i guess that's why he's the first democrat where you first started to see this um dichotomy i guess of thought where you know jackson what favored jeffersonian economic policy uh, but he was fiercely um in favor of federal government expansion just based on the way he responded to the nullification crisis. Yeah, Jackson, in some ways, he reminds me, just in terms of personality, a lot of Trump, in the sense that so much of Jackson's decisions about things seem to be based on on personality and personal conflicts rather than on like, you know, philosophically considering uh, the issues of the day. So I really think that, you know, if you if you look at Jackson's political career and much of his his rhetoric and even a lot of the things that he did policy-wise, uh, he always claimed to be a Jeffersonian. And on a lot of things, he was. You know, he he opposed the National Bank and you know, a n- number of other things. He was generally a low-tax sort of a guy, uh, generally a 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pretty fiscally conservative, generally most of the time supported the idea of of strict construction of the Constitution and all that. And yet, as you said, when South Carolina threatens to nullify uh, his tariff or does pass an ordinance of nullification against his tariff, he basically threatens to invade and use military force to make South Carolina pay. And and what's going on there? Well, I, I think there's there's two and, and this shows you, I think, the danger of people with this sort of personality that's that's very uh, volatile and, and narcissistic and uh, prone to making everything personal all the time. Basically, from what I can tell, the main reasons that Jackson was willing to use military force against South Carolina, number one, it's the idea of, well, I'm the president and that therefore any state who goes against uh, the federal government's policy while I'm president is basically personally flipping the bird to me and disrespecting me. And so, you know, Jackson's personality was very much that that uh, Scots-Irish descended, you know, is literally a guy who fought duels over insults and things like this, right? So, you know, the idea is like, not on my watch, you know, if you, if you disobey the federal government when some SOB like John Quincy Adams is president, like, hey, that's great, good for you. But you don't disobey the federal government when I'm the president, because I'm the boss, right? And then, to that also, he also had um, a a personal dislike of John Calhoun, even though they were both Southerners at the time, they were both nominally in the same party. And in fact, Calhoun at the time was Jackson's own vice president. But for a variety of reasons, Jackson had uh, just a, a real personal hatred of Calhoun. And so I think the fact that Calhoun was like, you know, possibly the most important South Carolinian advocating nullification that Jackson was basically like, well, if that SOB uh, Calhoun is, is for nullification, then, you know, I'm, I'm willing to pull out all the stops to, to prevent them from getting away with it. So it, it, it shows you that the danger of politicians that don't really have principles that, that to some extent just kind of go by instinct and personal beefs and whatever. And and I think Trump is an example of that to a large extent, right? Where like not only does he does he constantly flip where he stands on a particular issue all the time, he seems to be extremely influenced by not not considering the issue in a rational sense, but just by, well, if someone I like is for this side of things, then I'm I'm on that side. And if someone I dislike is on this side of things, well, then I'm against that, you know. And it's, it's it's really, I don't know. It's it's really dangerous and leads to these these strange contradictions. And it's amazing to me too how many of these um, internal conflicts are driven by economic policy. Like you know, you go back to the American Revolution and the Boston Tea Party you know, comes to mind over the, the tea tax. Um, and then, then you fast forward to this time period that we're on now, and um, uh, it was John Quincy Adams who authored the Monroe Doctrine and uh, was the uh, the tariffs of abomination, to, um, which, which was sort of tied to the nullification crisis, right? Because the southern states at this point in time were uh, heavily raw good export reliant. And and, and, and again, these are precursors to the Civil War. This was sort of a precursor to the Moral Tariff Act um, that that was disproportionately hurting southern states and favoring northern states. But this was the 
arm of the federal government trying to fund itself, you know, to, to continue its expansion, to continue its consolidation of power uh, at the federal government level. You know, the, the, the federal government ideology is, well, this is what's best for the country. Um, and, and, and you see these internal conflicts arising where economic policy that favors particular portions of the nation for the good of the collective um, tend to cause these types of political controversy. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the the rhetoric will come down to this whole concept of the common good, and this is something that always drives me nuts because I I happen to just believe there, there's no such thing as the common good that it's it's just a complete delusion, but this is what virtually every political ideology bases itself, you know, with I guess with the potential exception of things like like anarchism, um, and voluntarism and that sort of thing. But virtually every political ideology ultimately justifies what it wants to do on some version of the common good. And the fact of the matter is that when you're dealing with a state based on coercion, that Unlike in in free market interactions, it's always going to be a zero sum game, right? Because if the federal government primarily funds itself by tariffs, well, that's going to disproportionately hit certain people who are you know in certain parts of the country doing certain economic activities, and it's going to disproportionately help one way or another other groups that are doing other things economically, right? Whereas if you like any any form of a of a tax that you hit upon is going to hurt somebody more than others. So you know if you do it with an income tax, that's going to hurt different people different ways, and and some people are going to be less harmed by it than others. If you uh, if you put you know for example Alexander Hamilton's tax on whiskey, which you know sparked the whiskey rebellion, which is another um, really important overlooked event from from this early early republic period in american history uh the the whiskey tax it the way it was structured it disproportionately not only did it disproportionately harm grain farmers because that was one of the number one things they did with grain back then to make it portable and storable and all that and make it more valuable but it disproportionately hurt smaller farmers who tended more to be out on the frontier areas because the way the the whiskey tax was structured there were sort of like loopholes in it where basically if you were a really big distiller, you could pay a flat fee every year that if you were a big distiller ended up working out to like way smaller percentage, you know, per barrel of whiskey or whatever. than if you were a very, very small producer, um, then you had to pay a, a per barrel or gallon or whatever it was tax. That, so essentially it was regressive. It was just like the, all those regulations that we have with us today and ever since the progressive era that disproportionately ho- hobble uh, smaller firms. And yeah, the, the bigger firms have to deal with the regulations and taxes too, but it's proportionately way easier for them than for the little guy or the new firm or whatever like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm very much a fan of the whole uh, public choice idea that 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 politicians are always you know pursuing their own and their their backers and supporters interests and that there there ultimately is no such thing as as the common good uh when it comes to politics that it's always a zero-sum game and so conflict is inevitable 
And those brief periods where it seems like there's not huge political conflict, um, first off, I think a lot of times it's an illusion and that a lot of times the conflict is just temporarily kind of below the surface and whatever, and it bubbles back up pretty quickly. But but even if there are genuine instances where it briefly looks like there's a, you know, a political consensus and whatever, that they don't last very long. And they and they can't, because as soon as the state starts, you know, messing around with the economy and, and doing things, they're, they're going to, um, you know, hurt some people and harm some people. I mean, right now, right, with all the different lockdown policies and whatever, there are some businesses that are being disproportionately uh, harmed versus others. And, and one of the things that seems to be happening, at least from from what I've been able to tell, is that the the largest firms are getting through this much better than the smallest that you know they're able to consolidate they're able to deal with the the issues and and regulations and all that right i mean look at the the sorts of businesses that were kept open even at the height of the lockdowns they were you know big box stores and all that sort of stuff and then it, oftentimes it was the smaller businesses the independent businesses that were the ones that were just shut down um yeah there's a lot of commonalities there um and, and, you know, it goes to show, too, because the Constitution states in Article 1, Section 9, no tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state, right? I mean, I mean, it's right there, right, black and white in the Constitution. You're not allowed to levy these types of tariffs against uh, states because they'll favor individual territories over others and, and grant um, economic advantage, you know, to, to certain people. And that's um, a violation of their liberty. That's a violation of their right to pursue, you know, their own well-being. Um, and, and, it, and it's not compatible with free market principles. And it, it kind of goes to show, you know, no matter what you lay out in the documents that, that forge um, sort of like the binding principles of your, of your nation or of your collective or whatever it is, you know, like you have these continual ebbs and flows of economic and political expansion. It, it doesn't matter what you put in those, um, in those articles. Uh, and yeah, you're, you're very right. It's super familiar to the events that we're seeing today um, that were just all over this time period. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is what ultimately caused me to to stop being like a, you know, constitutional minarchist type in my, my thinking was a, a lot of it was this, this time period that we're talking about, you know, from the 1790s and then the first few decades of the the 19th, 19th century, that if you just think about, you know, you, you mentioned before um, the Sedition Act of, of John Adams, 1798. Now, you could argue that there had already been multiple different things the federal government had done from day one that violated the letter of the Constitution in some way, including creating the National Bank and a number of other things. But talk about something that's like, there's not a whole lot of gray you know, zone that there's, there's, there's not a whole lot of argument. If you read the first amendment, which is one of the most straightforward, easy to understand passages in the entire document, right? There's not a lot of wiggle room in the first amendment. Congress shall make no law bridging the freedom of speech or press, right? And then look at the sedition act of 1798. Congress made a law bridging the freedom of speech and of the press, right? And then think about this, that that the the people running all three branches of the federal government at that time were the generation 
who had written that that document, including you know presiding over the the passage of the Bill of Rights. Right. And so to me, it's it didn't like even take thirty yeah, years. To me, it's like if the actual guys who put who put all that stuff together, and yeah, they didn't all agree with it. Obviously, as as we mentioned, you know, Madison and Jefferson opposed it, as did a number of others. So I'm not saying they were all in lockstep in supporting the Sedition Act, but a heck of a lot of them sure were fine uh, with blatantly violating the Constitution. And so, if the very generation of guys who created that stuff couldn't be trusted to stick to it, then what kind of a delusion is it to think that people today, hundreds of years later, many of whom don't have much of a clue what's even in the Constitution and couldn't care less, that they're suddenly, just because of like, I don't know, people voting and demonstrating or whatever, they're suddenly going to see the light and go, well, let's go back to sticking to the letter of the Constitution. To me, that's just like, that's magical thinking. That's that's at the level of like, well, you know, if we could just, uh, uh, I don't know, create uh, alchemy, we can create enough gold to uh, pay off the national debt. You know, it's just like, okay, fine, I, I guess. But, you know, even in that scenario, I guess if you had alchemy, then you would just have inflation of the value of gold. So right. anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of a paradox. Um it ceases to become valuable if you can make as much as you yeah, want. Yeah, actually, the, the uh, Spanish Empire experienced a version of that in the like the 16th and maybe 17th century. The, the Spanish um, lucked out in a lot of the places that they grabbed in Central and South America happened to be very rich in gold and especially silver. And basically, that was the equivalent of like having a money printing press back then because the Spanish were like, great, we can spend like crazy and build, uh, you know, all this expensive military and take over all these other territories and whatever. And it's okay because we'll just mine more silver out of the ground in Mexico and Peru and whatever. And then like all that ended up happening was then you had inflation because whether it's printing more money or creating more coins, it kind of doesn't matter. Um, right. And and there's only so much capital to go exactly. around, right? I mean, capital is the accumulation over over long periods of time. Yeah. You can't just, just because you have more gold and silver all of a sudden doesn't mean you have more of everything else. Yeah, yeah. The, the irony is that the the empires that didn't have huge amounts of precious metal in the ground actually ended up doing better because they had to actually develop like productive capability in their in their colonies and in their economy, right? So the British, you know, eventually they took over Australia and South Africa with all kinds of mineral wealth. But, you know, in the 18th century, the British Empire didn't have a whole lot of of mineral-rich colonies, but they ended up doing better than the Spanish because they had to actually develop real productivity of actual stuff, right? So... Right. Yeah. And you saw this too with a lot of the, the early European North American explorers and traders um, finding uh, native people groups that had less sophisticated monetary systems who were trading with things like beads and seashells that in their environment might have been difficult to find. Uh, you know, they would they would just go and get hundreds of glass beads from Europe and come and take these people for everything they were worth and in their mind great well now i have all these glass beads but everything else you own just got taken from you and now you have nothing yeah yeah i don't know what it is about people that they they seem to get very easily disconnected from you know what what value really is and where it really comes from and I don't know. We, we we just seem to be very quick to go. All right, let's just you know print more money and everyone will be fine. Uh, I actually was was encouraged. Um, the the most recent 
appearance of Elon Musk on Joe Rogan. And, you know, certainly I don't think Elon Musk is, is perfect or agree with him about everything or anything like that. But as far as billionaires go, he's probably one of the least terrible these days. And um, he said something on, on Joe Rogan like, I've got news for all the idiots out there. If you don't make the stuff, there is no stuff. He, he, was, he was talking about this delusion that some people have that we can shut the whole economy down and just print up money and give everybody UBI and everything will be fine. Elon Musk is like, there actually is something called the real economy of actual stuff, you know? Um, and if there's no stuff, you know, the, the way I would, I would explain it to my students often when I'm talking about like inflation in, in history and whatever is I'll say, uh, you know, I'll go to, to sort of like a Robinson Crusoe uh, type of a uh, Robinson Crusoe type where I'm like, all right, you're, you're Tom Hanks talking to a volleyball on a de- desert Island and figuring out how to survive. And now imagine one morning, a, a suitcase full of bricks of hundred dollar bills washes up. Like what happens to your standard of living? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, m- maybe you've, you've got some, some decent toilet paper now. Right. Uh, if I don't know if the money's dry, maybe you can use some of it to help help uh, as to start fires, you know. But other than that, wouldn't you much rather have a suitcase full of like, you know, camping equipment wash up uh, rather than a suitcase full of hundred dollar bills in that scenario? So uh, if I, I've actually got some uh, some Zimbabwe bills that um, you know have, have like a trillion dollars printed on them or whatever. Um, that that are worth a couple bucks as collectors' items, as novelty items. So, yeah, that's uh, Mises covers that in Human Action. He calls it the autistic economy. I think uh, using the Robinson Crusoe example, it's a really good way to sort of. I, I find with economics, the best thing to do is to always boil down concepts to their most simple, fundamental level. Like, hey, we're not a global worldwide economy right now. It's just me and you in this room. And we want to trade like this bag of marshmallows, right. right? I mean, and if you break it down to that, it makes these first principles so much easier to understand. And then those extrapolate out to the highest levels, right? I mean, it's it's not that hard when you break it down to simple concepts. Um, well, sure, CJ, yeah. I know and you're it, you're running short on time here, man. I just want to uh, have you say your your last words so I don't keep you too long. Uh, yeah, well, just one thing I wanted to th- to throw in um, connected to what you were just saying, as far as you know, sim- simplifying down to micro examples to illustrate economic points, I think a very similar thing uh, can often be done with sort of moral questions and questions about natural rights and that sort of thing, right? So I'll do that with my with my students sometimes as well, where, um, you know, part of the reason I'm an anarchist is because I just apply the same morality to the so-called leaders and politicians that I do to anybody else and, and to the, the state, the people that comprise the state. I just apply the same morals to them. And so, you know, you can bring up examples of like, how come if a bunch of mobsters print up a bunch of money in their basement, we call that counterfeiting and that's, that's a crime and it's a version of stealing. But if the Federal Reserve does it, we call it monetary policy, right? Um, how come if I have a, a property dispute with my neighbor and I preemptively blow up his house, we all consider that horribly sociopathic and criminal. But if a government does it, to another country, we call it foreign policy, right? So anyway, I just wanted to, to throw that in there that, yeah, it's, it's a, a lot of times illustrates the point when you can, you can make it simple. So you're not distracted by, you know, all these different other variables and flags and titles and fancy buildings with columns out front. But 
Um, anyway, though, it's been uh, it's it's been uh, uh, great talking to you. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Where where can my listeners find you? Oh, my show is the Dangerous History Podcast, and if you just type in dangeroushistorypodcast.com, you will get there, and the podcast is uh, syndicated in all the usual podcasting venues, iTunes, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Dangerous History Podcast. Sweet, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes along with a link to your Twitter. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much. All right, guys, I hope that you loved that as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. CJ is remarkably insightful, just a wealth of knowledge. Such a fun guy to talk to. I've been looking for someone for a long, long time to talk to about uh, early American politics. As you might imagine, there's not a lot of people who are uh, well-brushed up on that history to have a conversation like that, so that was a privilege for me. If you guys enjoy the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, please leave likes, comments, subscribes, thumbs up, stars, whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Speaking of which, you can find us on just about any of your favorite podcast catchers, iTunes, Spotify, we're on most of them. And you can find all of our episodes at bitcoinechochamber.com. If you guys want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. All things related to the show, questions for me about Bitcoin or any topic that you want to talk about, I'll be happy to get back to you. Also, if you'd rather, you can hit me up on Twitter at HeavilyArmedC. That's the letter C. My DMs are always open. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I will see you in the next one. Uh.